Ecclesiastes, we will, if you have your Bible or your device, open that to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. You are going to need this morning the sermon outline, which is inside the bulletin. You're going to need that. You are going to need your own Bible, your own device to follow along because we're not going to have the scriptures and points shooting up on the screens this morning. Mike Colodi's on vacation, a much-needed vacation. He lost his father, so we need to be praying for, for Mike as well. And he and his younger brother have taken their families off to kind of remember their dad and everything. But anyway, all that to say, we're going to be a little low-tech, so follow along um, this morning and there. But we have been on this journey through the book of Ecclesiastes and book of Ecclesiastes is a little bit like your crazy Uncle Fred. I mean, you may not have a crazy Uncle Fred, but you have a crazy uncle, aunt, brother-in-law, somebody that wears the wrong thing, that shows up at the wrong time, that says the wrong thing, that's just kind of awkward. I mean, it's your, you know, it's your, it's your five-year-old daughter's birthday party, and crazy Uncle Fred is the guy that shows up in a Speedo. And, and I mean... It, you've got this guy. But I say that because the book of Ecclesiastes is the crazy Uncle Fred of the Bible, right? Um, the book of Ecclesiastes is the Bible book that you're like, wow, that's in the Bible? You know, I mean, it's, it's the book that says things that put us a little on edge, that maybe even seem a little awkward, a little out of place, a little, wow, that's kind of a weird thing to have in the Bible. That's the book of Ecclesiastes, all right? That's the book. It is not orthodox. It is not telling you about all the doctrines. It's not telling you about, you know, all of the things you should believe. It's more questioning what you do believe. That is the book of Ecclesiastes. And where Solomon is going to hit us today in the book of Ecclesiastes is right in a spot um, where we want to believe a certain way, right? We, he's going to hit this, this thing called, um, some people call it karma. This idea that the good, the good guys win, the bad guys lose. That that's kind of how the world works with some exceptions maybe. But in general, what comes around goes around and that's how the world. And he is going to attack that essentially today and tell us, yeah, not so much from my point of view. I don't see that. So before we kind of land in chapter 7, just kind of get a little taste uh, of chapter 9. Honestly, I put this in here because it reminded me of the Olympics, which are wrapping up today. Ecclesiastes 9, he kind of starts mentioning um, this idea that, you know, karma doesn't work. It just doesn't work. He says in verse 11, Ecclesiastes 9, 11, I have observed, you know, with my own two eyes, I've observed something else under the sun. The fastest runner doesn't always win the race, right? I saw a race this, this um, week, um, one of these longer races where uh, a woman who was in contention got knocked over. And so there she is weeping on the racetrack after the race is over. He says, I've seen that too. They didn't have cable back then, you know? He says, I've seen that, where the fastest runner doesn't win the race. The strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. The wise sometimes go hungry. And the skillful are not necessarily wealthy. Those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. It is all decided by chance by being in the right place at the right time. So that is his, his opening salvo, his opening barrage against the idea that things tend to work out the way they're supposed to. The good are blessed. Uh, the bad are cursed. The fast win the races. The slow don't. And, and, and he says, 
Mm, I haven't really seen that work so much. Sometimes yeah, sometimes no. Now he's going to turn his gaze onto the world of morality. Onto the world of garden variety goodness. And In fact, he's going to zero in specifically on morality versus immorality. He says, so you think there is balance in the world, so you think the good people do well and the bad people fail. He says in chapter 7, verse 15, in this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Right? I have seen the righteous man die young. I have seen the wicked man live till he's 99 and be loaded. He says, that's what I've seen. So he doesn't need here some complicated syllogism, some complex logical argument to convince us that karma is messed up. He says karma doesn't even pass the eyeball test. He says, I know it and you know it. We've all seen this at work. We have all seen the good person fail, the good person have bad luck, the good person get cancer. We've all seen the bad person make a bunch of money and seemingly be extraordinarily happy. So, Solomon is, is willing and ready to sit down at his writing desk, pull out his parchment and his pen, and begin writing a letter, Dear Karma, I have a list of the people you've missed. Right? That's how Solomon feels about karma. Now, in the real world, he says, you know it, I know it. Justice, hit and miss. Fairness, hit and miss. Um, the good, getting rich, hit and miss. Uh, or doing well, hit and miss. The bad, uh, perishing or suffering consequences, kind of hit and miss. So Solomon, in verses 15 to 29 of chapter 7, is on a mission to bring a dose of reality to the karma crowd. The rest of chapter 7, he is going to essentially look at two ways that we tend to order our world. Two ways that we tend to, to emotionally, intellectually, psychologically imagine that there, these are different operating systems and, and one of these is better. Now, the two ways are morality and immorality. Okay? Um, if you embrace uh, as your fuel, as your ultimate reality, morality, you believe that the best way to live a good life, the best way to have good things happen to you and have good outcomes in life is to be a moral person. You know that there are people that believe immorality is the better choice. After all, so many have openly lived that way. Um, they believe, honestly, that you are going to have more joy, you're going to be a happier person, you're going to have better outcomes if you are immoral. Now, part of that scenario may be I need to look moral, but I'm going to do immoral things. But they think, hey... While those chumps who are all into morality are spending all of their time following the rules, I can break all the rules and pretty much step on them and get things to turn out the way I want them to. 
That's the world you live in. That's the job you work at. Those are the elections you vote in. You know this is true. Some choose morality, some choose immorality. Now, what we're thinking here at this point in chapter 7 is, finally, finally, halfway through the book of Ecclesiastes, finally we've arrived. Morality versus immorality. Solomon is going to do us a solid here. Solomon is going to tell us, well, you're right. Morality is right. That is the fuel for life. But I said, as I said, this book is your crazy Uncle Fred. He's not going to say that. In fact, he is going to spend most of the rest of this chapter telling you what's wrong with being good. Okay? This is on your outline this morning. The first problem he has with goodness is (laughs) the problem of pride. The problem of pride. Um, There is a kind of righteousness, or better yet, a kind of self-righteousness that leads me to an inflated sense of self and a judgmental attitude toward others. Inflated sense of self, judgmental attitude toward others. And this is the irony of ironies, isn't it? There is a kind of goodness that is really, really bad. There is a version of righteousness that smells like a bucket of rotten tomatoes. There is a kind of super good person who makes it their mission in life to dot every I to cross every T, and like that extreme honor roll student, they want to hold up their test score and show everyone else how well they're doing. All right? I mean, they go to church every Sunday. They take the correct Christian-y position on all of the issues facing our nation, and they write about it on Facebook, and they join in the threads that they see. I mean, they have memorized some key Bible verses. Beyond that, they can tell you which versions of the Bible, which translations are acceptable, and which translations are to be frowned upon. They work hard. They work hard to display outward humility, and it is hard work for them because, after all, on the inside, they feel like they actually are kind of superior to other people. On any kind of goodness checklist they can imagine, they score better than those around them. But Jesus said in his most famous of sermons in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are keenly aware of their brokenness. Blessed are those who know exactly how messed up they are. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Flip side of that, cursed are those that are rich in spirit. Cursed are those who feel pretty good about their morality. Jesus isn't going to say it smells like a bucket of rotten tomatoes. He's going to say it smells, in in Matthew 23, it smells like a rotten corpse. His words, not mine, okay. He's going to say it smells like a rotten corpse. In Matthew 23, you might flip over there if you have your Bible, um, Matthew 23, he is going to take on who everyone would have known to be the most righteous dudes around, okay? These guys were squeaky 
clean. They knew the Bible frontwards and backwards. They knew even all of the little bitty stuff that no one else knew. They even made up their own rules to try to make sure they didn't even come close to violating any of God's word. Matthew 23, Jesus is going to use them as an example of over-righteous people or self righteous people. He says in the beginning, he says, you guys, starting out chapter 23, he says, you guys like to sit on the front rows of the synagogue. Thankfully, we have nobody on the front row today. He says, you guys, why would they want to sit on the front rows of the synagogue? Because what use is it going to church if nobody sees you going to church? I mean, you're going to go to all this trouble to get up and, and, and to skip the other things you could be doing to be at a house of worship, the least you can do is, is make sure people notice that you're worshiping God. Um, he says in verse 5, they wear very religiously clothes. I mean, they have these beautiful ornate talits, these prayer shawls that Jewish men um, would use, and they want theirs to look prettier and better than, than everyone else's. The talits often would have uh, a scripture um, on them. They would also wear scriptures on their wrists and on their foreheads, these things called phylacteries, um, which were kind of like, um, you know, kind of like a, the ancient version of wearing Jesus T-shirts or having a Jesus bumper sticker on your car or wearing a cross necklace or something like that or a WWJD bracelet. I mean, they would wear this stuff that told everybody just how great they were at worshiping God. Not that there's anything wrong with having a cross around you. That's not, I think you're getting the point here. They wanted to show how good they were. They didn't want anybody to miss it. Verses 13 and 14, they were very interested in letting everyone know who was in with God, who was out with God. Which churches, groups, which sects, which, which folks were on God's A-list and which he was keeping out of the party. Um, verses 25, 26, Jesus says, you guys are hypocritical jerks. I added the jerk part myself, but he says they're hypocrites, okay? Verses 27 to 28, he says, you guys um, care so much. Oh, I skipped verse 15. He, verse 15 is great. They were evangelistic too. I mean, hey, that's, like I said, uber righteous. I mean, they were even um, reaching people, sharing um, God with other people. Really, they weren't sharing God. They were sharing their rules, right? They were sharing, um, they were majoring in the minors, and they were creating disciples who would do that as well. Jesus says, you guys go halfway around the world to create someone who's twice the son of hell that you are. Um, verses 27 to 28 now. He says, you guys are so sick with self-righteousness and pride that you guys are like a graveyard, right? Graveyards, the most beautiful lawns in the city of Dallas are at the graveyards. Watered, green, grass perfectly cut, tombstones, beautiful with nice little sayings on them, beautiful polished marble or whatever, shiny white in the sunlight. He says, that's the way you guys are, Pharisees. On the outside, you look so good. Underneath, rotten corpse. You guys are completely rotten. So yes, there is a kind of righteousness that is sickeningly bad. Right? 
Uh, Matthew 23 doesn't present a Kool-Aid cookies VBS version of Jesus that's patting everybody on the head telling them how nice they are. It presents this king of kings who is really upset about this kind of, of righteousness, if you will. So he calls them in verse 13, hypocrites. He calls them in verse 15, sons of hell. He calls them in verse 16, blind guides. And then in verse 17, he calls them fools. And then he wraps it up in verse 33 by saying they are snakes and vipers. So yeah, Jesus wasn't real happy with the over-righteous or the self-righteous um, of his day, there was a kind of righteousness that was was distorted and, and, and ugly. Solomon, in verse sixteen of chapter seven, calls this um, over righteous, so concerned with goodness and religiosity that the person can't appreciate their complete brokenness and worthlessness and filthiness in the presence. Of a holy God. Frederica Matthews Green says Ego builds a cardboard fortress that humility must tear down every day. Blessed are the broken in spirit, the poor in spirit, who are willing to tear down that cardboard fortress of ego every day. So, one problem with goodness, air quotes, um, one problem with goodness is the problem of pride or being self-righteous, this version of goodness. Another huge problem with making goodness the fuel for your life, the number one thing you seek in your life is the problem of potential. Okay? We talked about the problem of pride. Solomon talks about the problem of potential. Um, <laughs> He says, um, on my own, I'm not capable of being good. More specifically, this is exactly what he says in verse 20. He says, there is not a righteous man on earth. Okay, did you hear him? There is not a righteous person on this ball we call planet earth. That's what Solomon says. Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, is going to quote this verse in Romans 3, verse 10. He's going to say, there is no one righteous. No, not one. So the problem is obvious. Okay, If goodness is the fuel for your life, if it is the way you have chosen to keep score under the sun, you've got a huge problem. You are not good, and you do not have the potential to be good on your own. Don't take my word for it. Jesus weighs in on this in Luke chapter 18, verse 19. This young man comes to Jesus, and Jesus looks at him, and he says, Young man, do you not know that no one is good except God? No one is good except God. If Jesus is right, I tend to think he is. If if Jesus is right, you are not good. I am not good. There is only one who is good, and that is God. 
So the only comparison I can make, because the way I end up feeling good about myself is to compare myself to other people. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Can't do that. They're not good. Um, You need to compare yourself against a standard. The only standard you can use is God because God is the only one who's good. And against that standard, no one is good. Whether you're Gordon Dabbs or you're Madonna or Mother Teresa or Charles Manson or Jerry Sandusky, you aren't good. That's what Jesus tells us. Um, So Solomon is basically in chapter 7 saying, good luck if personal righteousness is the fuel for your life because you are incapable of ever achieving that. In other words, that fuel put in your fuel tank is not even going to get you out of the parking space. All right? Back to karma. Remember, we talked about that to begin with. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Um, even if karma is right, all right, even if, if that's right, that that really does work that way, good things aren't going to be happening to you and me. You with me? Because we're not good. If good things happen to good people, nothing good is going to be happening to us. So there is this problem of pride. There is this problem of potential. There's also a big problem with perspective. Um, My judgments, this is the third bullet point on your outline, problem of perspective. My judgments with respect to my own goodness are flawed. He says in chapter 7, verse 22, in your heart, you know that many times you yourself have cursed others. Now, let me set this up a little bit. Um, What he does is he says, you may have overheard your servant, all right, like your, your employee, your coworker, it could be anybody really. But he says your servant, you may have overheard your servant talking bad about you, right? Gossiping, slandering, generally being mean. And, Saul, and, and just as you start to get worked up, yeah, I have. He says, oh, not so fast. Because in your heart, you've done the same thing many times. He's pointing at the problem of perspective, which is I tend to look at my mistakes. Um, I don't commit sins. I have mistakes, right? You know, I tend to look at my mistakes, my slip-ups, and, and I understand why those, those things happen. I cut myself some slack. I'm very charitable with the way I evaluate my own failures, sins. But I'm not so charitable or fair or even-handed or kind in the way I look at the failings of others. That's the point he's making. You want to judge your servant when you yourself do the same thing. A few years back, this is really interesting. You guys who are married are going to appreciate this. A few years back, there was this big study done. And these researchers asked this question of husbands. And then separately, they asked this question of wives. And the question was, who does the housework? around your house. Now, you can probably kind of see where this is going. Well, the wives generally, I mean, the answer from the wives was generally around 90%, right? I do roughly 90% of our housework. The husbands came in at around 40%, right? Now, the numbers differed a little bit with each individual couple, 
But in every case, the numbers added up. Every case, the numbers added up to more than 100%, right? So every house in America must just be beautifully squeaky clean because more than 100% of the work is being done. Now, before we jump to one of those two is lying, perhaps a more healthy place to go is maybe they're not lying so much as they have an inflated sense of their own contributions. They tend to remember things with rose-colored glasses when it comes to the work that they do. We have, uh, what the study showed was we have these self-serving distortions of memory. Um, We tend to grade ourselves differently than we tend to grade others. This, in a nutshell, is the problem of perspective. For Solomon, it's like, you want to curse and get on to your servant for bad-mouthing you, you do the same thing. You do the same thing. And finally, there's this fatal flaw with goodness, with basing your life on that as a fuel source. And this is the problem of performance. My righteousness, problem of performance, my righteousness is not based on my own good deeds, but only on the work of God on my behalf. Solomon actually says this in sort of an indirect way, but he says in verse 29, God made man upright. There is a principle there, verse 29, that only God can make people right. Only God can make people good. Under the sun, all right, or on our own, we cannot be good. We cannot make ourselves good. Only God can do that, okay? So in a society, in a culture that says goodness and rightness come from the inside out, Scripture says quite the opposite. It says, no, on the inside, you're messed up. Your only chance for being good, your only chance for being right with God is something on the outside, something above the sun. And that is the intervention of God on your behalf on the cross of Calvary. And that's the big difference between Christianity and every other faith, whether it's the five pillars of Islam or whatever. Um, every other faith is going to tell you, here is what you need to do. Here are the, the, the five steps, the 10 steps, the 20 steps for the Pharisees, the 623 steps that you need to take to make yourself right with God. Christianity says you can't make yourself right with God. That's why Jesus died on the cross, right? So on your outline as well, This kind of sums that up. Things are not made right under the sun. Under the sun, by the way, is a phrase. If you're new here in this series, Solomon uses this phrase over and over again to talk about life without God, life without faith. So just kind of doing it on your own. So things are not made right under the sun, but God has sent an answer from above the sun. The answer is found in Jesus and Him alone. So Solomon tells us, Uh, Karma is a joke, right? Karma is a joke. Things don't work out under the sun like they are supposed to, like we think they should. He says to us, what comes around doesn't always go around. Um, So the solution to evil and injustice in the world out there 
and the solution to evil and injustice in here cannot come from under the sun. It has to come from above the sun. It has to come from outside. It has to come from God. And that is what the gospel is about. Karma is a joke. Christ isn't a joke. Through his agonizing sacrifice, he has made you and I right with God. Seatbelts can be a bit of a hassle. I grew up in a home where my father was a medical doctor, so, I mean, it was never an option not to buckle your seatbelt. I mean, he saw what happened when people didn't, so it was, when we got in the car, you had to, he had to hear that click and had to see that seatbelt on you. It was almost like being on the airlines and, you know, they're going to go check you and make, okay, we're good. Um, that's the way it was in my house. But seatbelts, some people think, are kind of a hassle. There is a guy named Ivan Sedjigan who really hated wearing his seatbelt. In fact, he was ticketed 27 times for not wearing his seatbelt. It got very expensive for him. And so this guy ended up, he was committed to not wearing the seatbelt. You can probably kind of see where this story is going. He was committed to not wearing the seatbelt, so he decided he was going to create a fake <laughs> seatbelt. <clears throat> and somehow he designed this into his car where he could get in, and it looked like he was wearing a seatbelt. He had this contraption hanging there from the, from the roof. It looked like he was wearing a seatbelt when he wasn't really buckled in at all. You know where this is going. Sometimes karma does work, and he had an accident, and, and, and he... he he passed away, um, he, he died. His trick, you know, worked for a while, but when there was a head-on collision, he was thrown through the front windshield and killed. And now you're thinking, thank you very much for that story, that touching story. Um, but it's just as serious when you think about righteousness. Um, there is an imitation righteousness Right, that is do-it-yourself righteousness or self-righteousness or as Solomon says, over-righteousness. There's a version of goodness and righteousness that comes from you and it is imitation. It will not save you. It will not protect you. It is powerless. And then there's an, there is a righteousness that comes through the cross to you freely given. And that righteousness, it blows us away because it's a free gift. Romans 3.23, it's a free gift. It's, it's received by grace. That, my friends, will save you, will fill you with joy, will change the way you think about God, will change the way you think about the dignity and worth of other people for whom Jesus died, and will change the way you think about your purpose on earth. Yesterday, I didn't actually get to see this, so someone may correct me after. I've been watching a lot of the Olympics, but there's so much stuff going on, you can't possibly watch all of it. I didn't get to see this, but I've been hearing about it both on the TV last night and then this morning on the radio coming in at 5.30 in the morning. Um, there was a gold medal match in volleyball yesterday, which was Brazil versus the United States. The United States um, wins all the time. They're ranked number one in the world. I don't even know how they come up with these rankings for women's volleyball, but they do. Um, they had already beaten Brazil once in the Olympics, and so there they are clashing in the finals of women's Olympic volleyball, right? 
Um, well, as the match turns out, Brazil wins, okay? Sorry, everybody, but Brazil wins. Here's the story, though, that everybody's talking about. The Brazilians were too jubilant in their celebration, right? Both during the points and on, uh, during the medal ceremony. They were very quiet and respectful during their anthem, but as each woman received her medal, the others were dancing and jumping up, up and down and singing songs and stuff like that. And I did, like I said, I didn't see it, okay? So who am I to comment on this? But what it makes me think about is, um, man, when you realize what God has done for you, when you realize that you had no chance, but God is putting that gold medal around your neck and calling you a champion, when you realize what's going on, you may not be able to control your jubilation and your joy. You may overflow with happiness to such an extent that you simply have to sing praise at the top of your lungs, can't wait to get alone with God and pray and thank Him for what He's done to you. And that, my friends, that becomes the fuel for the Christian life right there. That gratitude, that wonder and joy, and maybe others will frown on you. Maybe they'll think you're going over the top, you know, with this Jesus thing. I don't know. But it is pretty amazing and hard to contain once you grasp the extent of God's love for you.